0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash w-t-f oh. all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fuck nicks what the fucksters what the fuck Delphians? what the fucking nucks i'm mark maron this is wtf I sound very clear to myself right now. I sound very clear. Welcome to the show today on the show, uh, Mac McCon from Merge Records, uh, the label, the 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 very the long enduring and amazing indie record label. Uh, also, uh, uh, the one of the founding members of the band Superchunk, still cranking out the rock and roll, uh, will be talking to me momentarily. Also, a little drop in chat with Carol Leifer, the comedian and writer about her new book how to succeed in business without really crying so sort of a double header today and i wanted to do a little business Uh, i know it's labor day a lot of you guys uh, and gals aren't gonna (laughs) that's so funny because i throw in the gals because i realize i i use guys as a general thing like "Hey, hey you guys like everybody that's men and women included uh but then when i say all right you guys there's part of me that goes what about the ladies all right you guys and gals uh I know it's Labor Day. You're probably going to listen to this at your leisure. It's going to be a little stilted because you're probably enjoying a barbecue or not really appreciating uh, what Labor Day really means, but uh, nonetheless, perhaps enjoying some free time, getting caught up on some shit, eating some food with the family, perhaps having another day of drinking, perhaps having another day of recovering from drinking. But but nonetheless, uh, you'll you'll get to this eventually. Uh, and I wanted to give you a heads up on, on some of the dates I have coming up because I just added a bunch of... Some of you people who are in L.A. or visiting L.A. Uh, enjoyed coming to my uh, my Tripany House residency shows, which is uh, it's a pretty low price ticket. It's pretty under the radar. I only tell you guys about it. I'll tweet about it a bit. Uh, but it's me just working out stuff and polishing some stuff and trying to find some new stuff. But as I head towards uh, the tour next spring... Um, and also towards some of the dates I have coming up at the uh, in the New York Comedy Festival. Uh, I haven't been in New York in a couple of years, and I'm going to be there on November uh, 7th. They just uh, added another show at the Skirball Center at NYU, uh, so I'm going to be doing two shows there, and I want it to be tight as fuck. I have this fantasy that I'm going to be tight as fuck. Yeah. Uh, I have this fantasy that my next special is going to be called Mark Marin Structured, Surprised. But uh, I wouldn't count on that. But nonetheless, some of you came to the Trippany House shows before and saw me work on some stuff. I'm going to be working on that stuff and I'm sure some new stuff. But those dates uh, at the Trippany House are uh, September 16th, 23rd and 30th and October uh, 14th and 21st. If you go to WTF pod and go to the calendar, you can uh, you can get that uh, get a link to those tickets are usually a cheap ticket. I do it for a benefit for the theater. Also, this Friday, September 5th, I'll be at the Nevada City Film Festival doing some some shows. Or a show. I'm not even clear if I'm doing one or two, but I should know that. And then the oddball dates still are coming up. And also we got the, uh, LA, the Los Angeles Podcast Festival again this year on the 27th, which is my birthday. I'll be doing a live WTF, and there's a lot of stuff going on there at the LA uh podcast festival you can sort of spend the weekend get a package deal and we got my podcast more stories with Jay Moore death Squad's going to be there never not funny with Jimmy Pardo risk with Kevin Allison Jonah radio with Jonah Ray the dollop with Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds improv for humans with Matt Bester the Todd Glass show the Dana Gould hour all going to be at uh at LA pod fest that's September 26th through 28th uh at the Sofitel Hotel in Beverly Hills uh, you could go to LAPodFest.com and uh, it's a fun weekend. Everyone had a blast last year. So, all right. So that's a little business out of the way. Before I get to Carol Leifer, I have this weird relationship, as many of you know, with this deaf black cat that comes around, and and I don't know. He, uh, I hadn't see, like my schedule had gotten sort of erratic, and uh, he's a real wild little fucker, and he's always sort of scraggly looking, and I hadn't seen him in three weeks, and I just assume, I you know, my assumption, uh, being you know, somewhat a realist, but also, uh, (laughs) you know, a a bit of a worrier and full of panic is that, uh, you know, if I don't see him, uh, you know, I I, I know I I, I just feel like he's probably been taken taken by the wild and has met some violent and lonely animal end. And then he shows up and he's looking good, folks. Uh, And and quite honestly, as I've shared with you before, it it bothers me that he refuses to fully acknowledge that I am important in his life. But I, but in in all sincerity, it's good to see him. And uh, like there, there's just points where you know, these relationships that I have in my life with these animals, where you you kind of assume that they're gone forever, and then they come back, and you know there's relief, but uh, there's also sadness and not knowing where they are. But that's just the way it is. I don't know. Should I put together some some strange kind of a feral cat codependency group here in the neighborhood for people who have relationships like I'm sure he's got benefactors all over the the neighborhood. I'm sure there's plenty of people that are standing uh, you know at their back window going I wonder if that black cat's coming back. I hope he's okay out there. Why shouldn't we be talking? Do you understand what I'm saying? Why shouldn't we be talking? So this was a actually a pretty exciting that Carol Leefer asked if she, she she could come back on Carol Leefer uh one of the great A comedian started out with uh, Paul Reiser and uh, Jerry Seinfeld and those people. That was her crew, Larry David and the like. Well, she's written this, uh, this great book. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. And and, uh, she came by to talk about the book and talk about comedy. And I always love seeing Carol. So let's let's go to that. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically Point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Now. Carol Leifer is back. She's back in my garage because she has this amazing book. It's a memoir, but it actually does serve as, a, as, as sort of an, avi- an advice book.
1: Yes, how yes. To,
0: how to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy. But it is a memoir, and I'm surprised that... I think people who want to do this should read it.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I'm really overwhelmed by the response.
0: Really? What's happening?
1: Well... You know, I got great response to my first book, but this book, I'm getting so many messages from people that are like, I'm, you know, thank you for writing this. It's really giving me a roadmap of what I want to do. I'm not even, sometimes they're like, I'm not even show business and it's helping me and thank you. And I wish I had, you had written this, you know, 10 years ago. And that really is nice.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's one of these jobs where. A lot of people who want to do these kind of things, these kind of jobs, think like, it's ridiculous, it's yeah. not practical. Uh-huh. But I think the book speaks a lot to knowing what you want to do, figuring out how to do it, and following your heart and doing it.
1: Absolutely.
0: And comedy's rough, but anything's rough if it's off. But where is there job security anymore?
1: Yeah, there is none. Right. And when you have a passion for something, you just have to go for it. And I talk a lot about tenacity and stick to because you know, I've been doing stand-up since I was in college. I mean, that's how long I've been doing this. There's
0: pictures of you in there, like little Carol on stage <laughs> with the appropriate hair for the time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But when there's the, those pictures of you and Riser and, and Jerry Seinfeld in his first apartment. Uh-huh. That's crazy. I know. I can't, like, it's so weird to picture just a bunch of Jewish kids. Yeah. Try, trying to figure out how to do stand-up <laughs> in New York City because I was one of them. Yeah. It never changes.
1: I, I know, and I always feel like if I... I hadn't met Paul in college because we were in the same theater group together. I don't know if I would have found the road to stand up because um, he was the person who told me, oh, there are these comedy clubs in Manhattan and told me about auditioning and all that. And you, I always felt like you need that person who kind of brings you into the fold or else how do you find it?
0: It's funny. He was the first guy that I ever asked how to do stand up. Really? I don't know if I told you that. No. He was uh I was in college and he was in Diner was already out and okay. I had gone to the comic strip when I was in New York City. I was come down from Boston and I saw Paul Reiser sitting on those booths, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, Oh my god, that's Paul Reiser, you know, and I was excited. Mm-hmm. And I went up to him and I'm like, you yeah, know, Mr. Reiser, I really want to do stand up. I mean, how do I how do I how do I get started? And he looks at me and he just says, Well, you just gotta do it.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that yeah. That was it.
0: But I think also what's interesting about your career is that um because when you when you do stand-up, and, and it took me years to realize this, it, all you want to do is stand-up. And you really don't think, I, I mean, acting, yeah, but you you want to do stand-up. Mm-hmm. You don't think about, I didn't anyways, think about writing for television or producing television uh-huh. or figuring out other skills that, that I might have that relate to doing comedy. I was like, I'm going to be a stand-up. Yeah. Which is a little limiting and hard to do for the long haul.
1: It is, but what I think has really been nice, I'm fortunate with my career, is I always give great respect to the stand-up because it really is the thing that gave me everything. I mean, it gave me a writing career because... I'd never written for sitcoms, but I was, you know, went way back with Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld to literally my first day of show business. You know, Jerry passed me and Paul on the audition at the comic strip.
0: He was in charge.
1: He was the MC. Yeah. And Larry David was the MC at Catch Rising Star. So I go that far back with these guys. And when they were specifically looking for people who'd never written for sitcoms before, and you know, to them corrupted by the system of right. bad sitcoms, um, I got a great break. So you know even my corporate speaking that i do now which i love came from my stand-up so i give it a lot of respect
0: no of course but like i think a lot of guys get myopic you know like i did Uh like i'm I'm not gonna write i I do my own stuff yeah and and uh, i ended up in my garage broke five years ago so that (laughs) there's always that possibility because you
1: know but you did something that's very important that i do talk about in my book I mean you took the reins right you know you didn't give up right you saw that you were good at something right and you went after it and created it and look at everything that it's that has come to you as a result
0: it's all from stand-up I I don't I wouldn't have been anywhere without Mm stand-up and I still mm -hmm. consider myself a stand-up to the point where if someone says that you're a great interviewer there's part of me that's like yeah but you know you just saw me do stand-up I mean how Do, Take that,
1: the compliment.
0: <laughs> that's another <laughs> As lesson. my mother would say. Is that in the book? Take the compliment. <laughs> don't, don't question the complimenter.
1: Well, I do quote my mother, of course, being a Jew, because also another big part of my philosophy for staying in the business and staying alive in the business is, you know, the old you don't ask, you don't get, mm-hmm. which I think is really important because it's also a fine line between not being a pain in the ass squeaky wheel you know that someone uh, looks the other way when you come but also kind of going after what you want and there is a way to ask people nicely for things or approaching people that's right um, and standing up for yourself
0: yeah absolutely yeah yeah, without being annoying right it helps it it helps if you have talent it helps If (laughs) if you
1: have talent yes yes it helps if you have talent and you also have to not be afraid of no yeah, no. that's, a, that's a hard one. I mean, going on this press tour, I have approached people about um, if my publicist couldn't get me on a certain show, I'll reach out yeah. to the host of the show and say, hey, it's me. I'm having trouble getting on the show. I'd love it if you could make it work. If you can't, no problem.
0: Did, did that, it worked?
1: It has worked so far. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: knock wood. Well, the other thing that you're saying too, I I think about, like, about Jerry and about Larry and about something I realized in being in this business for a while. Is that it's important to maintain relationships as well with people that you like because a, a lot of times you know people come up together and if somebody gets an opportunity and you're and you're in the wheelhouse of what they need, yes. they're going to think of their friend first. They're going to think also of of people they respect and they know. It's it's just I never really maintained relationships because I was a lone wolf and and I and I burned bridges. That was my style. <laughs> but it's nice to keep in touch with people.
1: Absolutely, and being social and. Uh, I think a good egg you yeah. know comes back to you. I mean look I just I'm out pitching a show um, a sitcom with Ben Silverman and um, we go to NBC and who do I pitch to but my agents former assistant oh that happens all the time
0: now. oh my god
1: I mean thank God I'm nice to agents <laughs> assistants because uh, I feel for them but if I had been a real prick yeah that would have been the most uncomfortable pitch having her look at me like oh it's pay deck uh, yeah. payback time that's bitch. right that's right here we go
0: yeah and uh I, oh nice to see you carol thanks yeah. for coming in yeah. bye <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna
1: take your pitch and then i'm gonna pass on it fucker <laughs> yeah. how about that exactly yeah that was for the uh chop chop let's go get my agent on the phone
0: <laughs> yeah um, i've been that guy I never did it right. So I I think I should read this book more thoroughly. (laughs) I love the... uh, I read the piece about uh, soupy sales because I had a similar thing with... uh, Where you just... You know, there's something about being in show business and when you're young, there's somebody that's going to like make you like, yes, that's my Uh guy. Mine was Buddy Hackett. Oh, I wrote to Buddy Hackett. You did? I wrote to Buddy Hackett and he sent me an autographed picture.
1: Wow. Isn't that weird?
0: And now knowing the kind of life that Buddy Hackett led (laughs) and like who might have sent me that picture. (laughs) But you actually went and saw You went to where you heard that Soupy Sales ate. You read it in a magazine. You and your family. That's nice.
1: I loved Soupy Sales. I would rush home from school to watch him. I read in a magazine that he used to eat at the Minetta Tavern, which I believe is still in the it's village. A, yeah, it's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked my parents if we could go. And in really looking back now, instead of them being, you know, horrible parents and saying, honey, there's no chance, the soupy <laughs> sales is going to be a Minetta Tavern, you read a ma- we, we got dressed up. We took the Long Island Railroad. We went to Minetta Tavern. My father looked at the bill. I'm sure he was like, paying the inflated <laughs> village prices. Yeah. And, um, Of course he was not there, but still it you know, it was amazing that I look back now that my parents were nice enough and sweet enough to like, honey, if you think he might be there, let's go. Oh, they were supportive. Linguini and (laughs) clam sauce and check it out. (laughs) And you're
0: sitting there waiting for soupy. Yeah. I know.
1: But stuff like that I you know, i think is important. You know, even that I left college, I finished college, but that I left going to school in Binghamton to start this crazy career of stand up comedy.
0: And you went back and finished?
1: I went to Queen's College, so uh, as you know, Mark, in my joke, Queen's College is very tough. You need a pen to get in. Um, But, uh, you know, so I finished my last year. It's so funny. I did Bill Maher and I did all my (laughs) jokes, you know, slamming Queen's College. Of course, the first, uh, you know, call I got Monday after Maher was like, will you perform at Homecoming? So I'll be there in October, folks. Are you really? um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that.
0: That's interesting.
1: Well, actually, I'm very grateful to Queens College because in those days, I did an internship that was like... I had a professor who was like, you know, uh, talk about your stand-up comedy, write a journal. I would like to hear tapes every now and then, and it really helped me a lot. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, I really think it was very cool of them to let me do that course.
0: Are you going to go? Are you going to do stand-up? or Are you going to talk? I mean, I'm,
1: I I'm going to speak. Right. Yes. That's Queens, better. But it will be funny.
0: Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I think. But I, I, because I, I couldn't imagine. I don't know who goes to Queen College or what it looks like now. Yeah. but <laughs> I imagine that you going and doing the half hour <laughs> would be a little tricky. Sometimes, like you know, I don't. Don't know what kids are thinking
1: well it's a, a alumni homecoming so oh, it's, yeah, all yeah, cool. yeah. it's all cool it's all great yeah. uh,
0: your graduate that did good yeah so let's let's go through the uh, like if you were and i imagine you've talked about this before in terms of like if you were to see this as some sort of beat by beat system to keep plowing through I, I it seems to me that you know well doing stand-up you know having the courage to do what you want to do and trying it and then and then sort of persevering or sticking yes. with it mm-hmm. long enough to to see if you can do it right but then you, you know when there must have been some dark times.
1: Absolutely.
0: Were you like how am I going to get work? I mean, you talk about auditioning, which is a nightmare.
1: Well, I talk about, you know, I I got on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which makes a great story, mm-hmm. sitting here and talking about that, but I wrote about it because it took me 22 auditions to get on. Oh my god. Yeah, 20 fucking 2. And You know, you know, as a comic, after maybe the seventh time, you're like, okay, this is getting a little ridiculous. And that was, and that
0: was all there was. I mean, at that time, Mm -hmm. I mean, what year did you do it? It wasn't like there was a million other showcases. No, I could validate you. The first time in
1: 1980, right, and then I got on in '92, right before Johnny left, and I was doing uh, the Letterman show this whole time, right. But I still couldn't crack the Tonight Show. But every, you know, so I talk a lot about tenacity and stick to itiveness because, you know, audition number 22, if you think I wasn't ready to say to them, are you fucking kidding me really one more time you want to see me and then it put it over so who knows
0: oh, yeah it, you don't know it's yeah. like, and you don't know you know what I'm finding is that you don't know why the decision is made
1: you never you de- know
0: you don't know why the other 21 decisions were made you don't know <laughs> but, like if Johnny even knew who yeah. you were yeah. or who was stopping you mm-hmm. it's very easy to you know to think of, like some sort of larger a- entity is is sti- stopping you but, yeah. but sometimes it's just one asshole
1: it, it can't be that <laughs> it's one you, asshole you know,
0: It's it's like when people, when you get insulted on the internet. It's not the internet. Yeah. It's just one asshole. One
1: person, one unhappy, cowardly person. That's
0: right, who has power. Yeah, Yeah. but even
1: out of the worst, darkest valley, and I write about it in my book, can come the greatest moment of your career. Like what? For example, I was really at a horrible point in my stand-up working terrible places. I met this new agent who was like, come to my agent, um, come to my office, and uh, write down your gigs and how much you got. We went through it, and he was like, oh, you know, you got this at Ho-Ho's? I can double that. You know, you got this at Sir laugh a I right. can triple that. Anyway, cut to six months later. Literally, Mark, I'm working on the Jersey Turnpike doing ground round restaurant comedy <laughs> nights okay where they can't even hear your jokes because the din of the peanut shells as they're shelling them yeah. on the floor okay horrible and i'm saying this guy like where's the great gigs he's like Carol, i'm working on frank and i'm like who frank stallone because at this point i don't see anything happening
0: he was Frank Stallone's agent? <laughs> what do you mean he Frank? He was
1: working on Frank Sinatra.
0: Oh, he, oh, really? Yeah,
1: but that's what I mean. Trying I was to thinking, open for him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this guy is out of his mind. <laughs> yeah, and then right. he got me, you know, I'm still working on this turnpike and this exit. And sure enough, I'm working on a cruise ship. Yeah. And you know, in those days, if you got a phone call on a cruise ship, yeah. you know, one of your parents croaked yeah, right. or your house burnt down. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I got you opening for Frank Sinatra. In Vegas at Bally's Hotel.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, he
1: had a weird direct line to Jilly Rizzo. And it remains my greatest show business memory because not only was it, you know, interfacing with greatness and he was such a gentleman and such a pro and, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's amazing memory, but it came out of this dark hole of depression.
0: <laughs> like ground rounds in a boat. Yeah. You're, it, it was over. There's no better metaphor for like a career ending than to be out on a boat.
1: <laughs> it's like
0: you're, just, you're not even yeah. grounded. How long did you open for Frank for
1: um, I did... Uh, I think it was five shows. Yeah, it was a, the weekend, a weekend in June in 1989. And, you know, I was nervous about it, obviously, because it's like, oh, God, the, you know, crowd's going to eat me up. And I called Larry Miller because yeah. Larry Miller had opened for him. And he was like, Carol, you've got it completely wrong. They're looking at you like you're Frank's girl. Go out there with that confidence. And I did, and I would open the show with... Good evening, everyone. And I was so happy when Mr. Sinatra asked me to join him here at Bally's. And it really set the tone for the sets. And I have to say that I still kind of use that trick when I open for someone in a little bit of a scary situation. Right. I take ownership. I was glad when so-and-so asked me to- Gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, they're comfortable- and it was amazing to watch him backstage, to watch him be like any performer when it's a hot crowd performing a little more, opening yeah. up a little more when they're a little tight, pulling back a little bit. But he brought me out every night for a bow. Mark, uh-huh. How oh, amazing that sweet. And he also said some cryptic things. I mean, he was like, uh, that's Carol Liefer. She's big, she'll knock you over for the phone. <laughs> Okay well, She'll uh, knock
0: you over For the phone Yeah
1: I still do not know What he meant But thank you for the compliment Mrs. Sinatra um, And then one time He said uh, There's Garilever. Wish my mother Had been that funny I wouldn't have had to work so hard uh, The summer went Came right in And, and what? then he started What, what? <laughs> Did you like think
0: Like is this Buddha Do I have to decode this <laughs> What does it mean I can't <laughs> Well, I think that's also uh, an amazing thing about this business that that I don't that I've talked to a lot of people, but we don't. No one's really talk about it, but I talk about it. Where. You're with another entertainer where, where these are guys you grew up, you know, you came up with, like Bill and Larry and, and Paul and, and Jerry, who are, you know, huge acts now. But there is something amazing, just knowing that we're just people. Mm-hmm. And then that moment where you're all waiting to go on stage in a big venue or yeah. you're at someone else's show. Right. And that guy, you know, like uh-huh. just a guy. Uh-huh. And then he's out there in front of like thousands of people. Yeah. And it's like, there's something so magic about it. I can't even explain it. It's
1: wild, isn't it? Yeah,
0: because I'll sit next to people. Like if I do a live show or even if you do Conan or, or any of those shows or Letterman, this is just a guy, yeah. And then the, I don't know, I don't know what it is.
1: Uh huh.
0: <laughs> I still can't understand the the magic of it. I mean, right. it, it just comes from time. But this, it's so uh, it's so cool to be in show business sometimes. It really is, especially also, when you're standing right backstage and you're just watching. Yeah, that the transition cool. from like you, you know whoever you're standing there with, or even if it's you, they bring the person up. Yeah, and it's just like it's it's show business. I know, I know. You gotta love show business. But I
1: talk a lot too about the camaraderie among comics, mm-hmm. which there is and built in. I talk about this story where I went to do this corporate gig uh, and I came by myself like I'm sure you do without your agent or manager and show up. And I see the mic on stage and the stand, and then I'm like looking for the follow spot. And I right. say to the tech guy, like, um, it sees me on the act and I don't see the follow spot. And he looks at me like, oh, sorry, Cher, we don't have your spotlight. And I'm looking at I'm like, no, you understand, it's kind of important when you do a show in a dark room, that you have a spotlight. He's like, well, we don't have it. So I'm like, all right, great. I'm going to, you know, yeah. start to think, all right, I'll figure out how to do this now. Joan Rivers comes in because she was going to bring me on just for five minutes. Yeah. It was so perfect, Mark, because she walks into the room, she sees me, says hello, she looks around, she goes, Where's her follow spot? (laughs) The tech guy's face like <laughs> fell. And she's like, Are you kidding me? You don't have a follow spot even for me up there to bring her on. She did 10 minutes before she brought me on of like, If you are not nice to this Carol Liefer, I'm going to kill you guys because this is so <laughs> unprofessional. It was the greatest thing. Yeah,
0: it validated. And only
1: another comic understood. That's right.
0: And one with a little juice. Exactly. Who, who doesn't have anything to lose? <laughs> yeah. It's nice when they come to your defense. Right.
1: you said it. But that's another thing I shared, you know, something Jerry Seinfeld told me. Um, there's not just one thing.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Like when I had my sitcom All Right Already on the WB, um, you know, the day before, the day of the shooting, you know, that we were going to shoot it that night, the taping, Jerry came by, he could see I was a wreck and he was like, Carol, there's not just one thing and I was like, you're bumming me out, okay, because I'm going to be taping my pilot. He was like, I don't mean it that way. It's like, Look at it as another day in the career of Carol Leifer, because right. there'll be many more days like this, right. and many more nights. It's not the one thing that's going to catapult you.
0: That's it. That's that thing. Like, right? This is not. It. You, yeah, your life goes on. Mm-hmm.
1: And same thing. Focus on your work. Focus on what you're doing. Give a great performance tonight. Yeah, but it but it ain't the be all end all.
0: Right. So at this point in your career, I mean, you you've been a stand up. You've had your own show. You've written on other shows. You've written for the Oscars. You've done all this stuff. You have a life. You're respected. Yes. You're doing corporate events. You're a writer. <laughs> I mean and in and, and I don't know that you would have imagined uh, at the beginning, like where you're like, I just want to be a comic, that, you know, the the way your life has gone.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's really nice. And and what I do really love about it is there is nothing better than stand-up. Stand-up is great, but then there are times then when you get tired of traveling and you get lonely, and then to be in a comedy writer's room with your buddies and laughing and that social thing is fantastic, and then you want to go away a little bit and write a book and be solitary, so it's great to like mix it all up.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that, uh, in my experience in talking to creative people and knowing that creative people listen to this, is that... It, your, your belief in yourself is is, is going to fluctuate, mm-hmm. y- 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 <laughs> yeah. you know, but like at some point, uh, if if you're lucky and also a bit cursed, you realize like, well, I, I got to do it. I got to yeah. keep doing it. Yeah. It's it's that's the biggest leap that I think people have to make is this. If you're creative and you want to live a, the life of a creative person, that there is no there, there, there are paths or ways to do it. But ultimately, it's going to come from tenacity
1: absolutely one way
0: or the other yes whether you end up being the biggest stand-up in the world you end up being a writer whatever it's going to be if you have a talent and you can figure out what the fuck it is yeah figure out how it can apply Mm -hmm. to whatever it is you want to do right and sometimes you have to make compromises
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah
0: but there's nothing wrong with making compromises if you're still honoring what you want to do
1: yeah yeah and I mean all those you know there are still those you know it's not just one thing Uh, examples every day I mean with my book I knew the New York Times is going to you know, review me. And then, you know, that's the sleepless night. Like what if New York times hates my book, you know, and then you get obsessed about it and thank God they love my book. (laughs) Oh, good. You know, but that even if they didn't, it's like life goes on, you know, you move forward, but um, there's always those things and you control what you want to control and can control and you screw the rest. That's right. You'll, you know, that will eat you up.
0: And don't let it crush you if you're disappointed.
1: And, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Disappointment's
0: but I, part of life.
1: Disapp- and especially in this business. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. minimum daily requirement. Always.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's like it... You know, there's a. Uh, it, it's just one of those things where you you always assume that the people that you're jealous of, or the or th- the things that you want that others other people have, there's this weird idea that like, well, they've got it made, and then you know you get to meet them and you're like, no, they're not that they're not yeah. that happy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't like
0: if that guy's got everything and that's how you... Yeah.
1: Right. If that's everything, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, think I don't I'll take yeah. everything. I'm
0: gonna have to figure out what my everything looks like. <laughs> well, thanks for coming. And I, 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 I'm I, so glad the book is doing well.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me back, Mark.
0: I, I'm sorry it took so long. I've been busy.
1: No, I know. I wasn't
0: trying to avoid you, but the nine emails helped, Carol.
1: <laughs> Stick-to-itiveness, squeaky wheel. <laughs> right. Not being a pain in the ass, finding yeah. the balance. Yeah,
0: yeah. And never once did I go, what does she want from me? <laughs> all right, all right. Just have her over. When to schedule it. It's always good to see you. Love ya. All right, you guys, I'm, uh, well, you know, I just, I was in a relationship and, um, and, you know, relationships for me, obviously, as many of you know, have been all variations of difficult, but this one was, was actually going, going, going pretty well. And you know, and I've been, you know, quite honestly, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but you, but you're my audience, and I, and I've been keeping my private life pri- private, you know, for a change, so I, so I can actually have a private life, and and I'm sorry to to cut you folks out of the loop, but I was finding that it put an added strain on the situation when I I invite a few hundred thousand people into the room as a as a second and third and three hundredth uh, set of ears, so you know, but you know, I had hinted at it, but I was seeing someone in uh, in another state, and and you know, it's just like. It was great and it just but it just became it became too hard, you know, and it started to seem unfair to both of us. You know, the distance, you know, which for me, I actually initially was was great because it it, it didn't enable me to a mesh immediately and then sort of annihilate any sort of possibility of real intimacy. And, you know, we were able to spend a lot of time talking to each other on Skype and stuff. But but the thing was, is just that um, the distance is also like, sadly, was the thing that uh, ended up making it you know, very difficult to maintain. You know, longing is very frustrating and commitment is is like sadly terrifying to me at this point in time. And I just, I don't know really how to deal with making practical decisions when there is like just so much emotion involved. And you know, and, and this person's a great person. and I, And I'm just, there's part of me that's actually beginning to understand why people stay in things that may not be that good or great. Or just decide to be alone because the pain of beginning and ending things is fucking awful. And it's just, it's wearing my heart down. And I, you know, I can feel myself becoming cynical and, and it's like, it's a fucking nightmare. It's it's just one of these things where why, why can't I just get to the, why can't I just let go and get to that place of, of real intimacy? I don't know, because I got work to do. I don't know, man. I think I'm just going to pull back and try to figure out what I really want. How would that be? It's not bad to be alone, right? As long as you're not lonely, right? I mean, I don't know. You know what? I'll ask my cats. Yeah, that that's good. That's what I'll do. I'll ask my cats. It's okay, you guys, right? We're okay. You know what? I'll ask Deaf Black Cat when he comes back around. How would that be if he comes back around? See, there's no shortage of of longing, and ever. But so I'm a little a little heavy hearted. I you know I, I imagine some of you can read that. Some of more uh, some of my more perceptive things. But uh, look, I'll I'll talk to my cats about it and everything be all right so i'm I'm happy to have mac mccann mac mccann here today he um you know he was he was there man i you know years ago i lived with a dude in boston that was running his own label called vanishing point records his name was stan monroe he's actually out in carolina in carolina too but he got out of the it, 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 the only band on his label was his band and just what he went through to try to run a label to get the vinyl out to get and this was before uh it was easy to work on the internet just you know boxes and boxes of records of a band that nobody heard of trying to fucking get some traction i mean it is a, a massive undertaking and it's pretty fascinating that not only has uh, mac sustained merge records but sort of adjusted it with time to the market and, and to the needs of artists but he's also you know been putting out records with Superchunk forever uh so yeah, you know we're gonna have a conversation about that it's really a conversation i've not had on the show um the uh, the conversation uh, about, um, you know, about running a label. Let's go to that now. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been trying to talk for, what, a couple of years now? I'm
2: not, I'm not even sure how the relationship began. Uh, of course it began because I was a fan. Uh-huh. Uh, and knew that you liked music and i think maybe got in touch to see if we could send you some yeah you sent me some then music. you did some ads well you know super chunk
0: your band has always has been one of those ever present bands it's one of those bands that started at the time where where everything like where, where punk was sort of like evolving into this other thing and then you it was just there was always a super chunk album always <laughs> how, i mean how many albums
2: <laughs> are there seriously i think there's you think i think this there's your band i know well uh, it's funny because i had i tried to come up with this number for my kids the other day because they're like dad how many albums do you have <laughs> yeah so like i think uh i think there's ten studio albums and then several collections and eps and things like that you know um because i always liked bands that when i was growing up uh you know in high school buying records i always like bands that were constantly putting stuff out. Yeah. Like, there would be a new album, but then there would also be some other single that you're like, what is this on another label that's like, you know, got to get that. You know? Right. Just, just kind of spraying stuff out there.
0: Yeah, and then uh, then all of a sudden there'd be these releases like from like before they were the band you knew. Yeah. And you'd be like, what, they were uh, they were doing things then?
2: Oh, I was- Who's I, that guy? Yeah, I, I was, li- I would buy like Records by Bon Scott's band before ACDC. Get the fuck like, out. Like I don't even, now I need that record. I don't even know <laughs> oh, about that. What yeah. do you mean, Bon Scott's other band? <laughs> you know, because those guys were all in, like, garage bands and things like that, you know, beforehand. Now,
0: Superchunk is, is your band, and John Worcester, who a lot of my fans know from Sharpling Show, and I I didn't really put it all together. Like, you, you know, Superchunk was always there for me, but in, and not until you started sending me records that I have to go sort of, like, reckon with Superchunk. Like, there's a big chunk of... Uh, Of music that somehow I just fucking missed because I was locked into a more mainstreamy music Mm -hmm. uh, mode when you were out, you know, punk rocking. This (laughs) is
2: like in the in the nineties, you mean?
0: Probably. Like I, I don't, I can't really, I don't know if it was that music wasn't as important to me after high school for a few years there. I mean, I remember when Nevermind came out, and I remember when you know that you know that I started to get really back into it then. But I
2: seem to have missed a whole lot. But when did you start playing? So we started Superchunk started in eighty nine. And we started the record label, Merge, at the same time. But you were going, like, I
0: got the book. This, this
2: is Yeah, the, the, the but we had bands before that. I right. was in bands before that, starting in in high school. I was in bands starting in, you know, 1983 or something like right. that. Right, but this is in North Carolina? In North Carolina. Uh, so I was in bands in high school and then 83 po- post-high so school and then in college. So you are in high school. Yeah. And yeah. junior high. High school and, and junior high. And you always high. played guitar. It's weird. I always played trumpet. And then in, like, school band, you know? Yeah. And then, oddly enough, my sister, who I don't think has touched a guitar since then, was taking guitar lessons. Yeah. And so she had an acoustic guitar around, and I just started playing her acoustic guitar. Right. And teaching, trying to teach myself, I think it was ACDC songs. I, I think I bought a songbook, an ACDC songbook. Nice. And started to teach myself guitar that way. Yeah. Uh, and then I took a couple lessons... At the mall, at the music store, Pearson Music in the, in the mall, um, and bought a knockoff uh, SG because Angus played an SG. Yeah! And uh, and so that was my first guitar. And I took a couple lessons and the guy kind of gave me the basics and then I, I didn't really take any lessons after that. And then I was in, in bands and got into punk rock after that. Punk rock made it easy. It did. So, you just have one sister? I have a sister uh, who's uh, three years younger, and a brother who's eight years younger. Eight years younger. Yeah. Whoops. And he's a drummer. Really? And he he plays drums for bon Iver.
0: Oh, I have that record. A couple of their records. Yeah.
2: But okay, so you're growing up in North Carolina. That that is officially the South, correct? Yeah. Well, I was I was born in Fort Lauderdale, and we lived there till I was twelve and then we moved Oof. to then we moved to North Carolina. Yeah, lucky you got out. You would well, have been a different it, man. You know, it's so weird because I totally agree, but at the time like I could not believe that we were leaving for Lauderdale. Like we lived on a canal near the beach and it was like seventies Lauderdale, I think, was way different than 80s Lauderdale, or certainly now, whatever it is. The problem with uh, with Florida is that, like, what defines
0: Florida? I mean, is there a Florida sound? I mean, you would have been lost. You would, you would never have found it. Well, your... that's
2: what's so funny is that, like, I remember distinctly being angry with my parents because I was like, we're moving to North Carolina- no bands play in North Carolina. There's going to be no like. I was so convinced that like Lauderdale got all the great concerts because I had seen Molly Hatchet or whatever, you know. And I was like, I can't believe we're moving to this backwoods. Like I just had this idea of it right. that was so like How wrong. Am I see Molly Hatchet. Yeah, and so it's it's ironic. Did that, you really it see it Molly Hatchet? Oh, that was my first uh, arena concert. Yeah. Three guitars, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. God damn. Be- beating the odds tour. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so right, so like I was really bummed because like here like we live by the water and like Florida my grandparents were from there my, my dad was from there my mom like they're all from from Florida and so like I had this real it's very imprinted on me even though I recognize what's weird and terrible about Florida by the time like I loved it so much and didn't want to leave of course as you say like oh my god I'm so lucky that I didn't end up trying to be in a punk rock band in Florida yeah Um I'm sure there are some great ones were some great ones then but in the early 80s um north carolina in the south like was kind of an awesome place to be for music it turns out you know which i there's no way i knew that what kind of business was your dad in that he's moving around uh my dad is a lawyer and um he had a firm with my grandfather in in fort lauderdale Yeah. and then um when my dad was i guess he would have been 40 yeah he had a stroke yeah and his doctor was like and he recovered from the stroke, but his doctor's like, "You need to do something less stressful than what you're doing now, and you need to live in a less stressful place." because Lauderdale was super crime ridden yeah. at the time, and and they're like, "All right, they've both gone to to Duke uh, in Durham, and so I remember that my dad like went to Durham. they both went to Duke. they both went to Duke and yeah. so, so my dad took a trip to Durham. there's one we're still living in Lauderdale. He got a job yeah at Duke, bought a house. It was all on. in like a week, and then you know, and then there was not a time when you could like, hey, let me let me text you that picture of the house I'm going to buy no, or whatever. He just did you it. know, he just like did it, came he did back. What a a like, man does. He's like, we're moving. Yeah, yeah. It's all set. It's all set. At been least at, at least in my memory, that's how it happened. Like, I mean, I'm, obviously, <laughs> I was not consulted as a 12 year old. <laughs> uh, so we moved to North Carolina. Yeah, but um, but I I find that Florida still kind of like looms large, really, in my Even mind now? in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. I, do
0: you go there? Hardly ever. I go. My mother lives in Hollywood, like right out there at Lauderdale, yeah. and you know I've grown to appreciate it, but I still don't know what defines it,
2: other than like this weird end of the end of the road e- element to it. I feel like there's an old Florida thing that's kind of appealing, and certainly like the nature aspect of it is, yeah. is very appealing. The Everglades and things like that, and the Keys. Yeah, like, yeah. We yeah. would oh, get yeah. out of the Keys and uh, and fishing a lot with my grandfather and stuff like that. Like that that looms large. But you know, as a band, actually, we've had some great shows in florida and a lot of bands don't go there because either they don't think it's going to be good or because it, it it really adds like a week onto any tour that you're doing for you know bands. to go down there like yeah. to really do it you got to go down right it takes takes a while but you know if i've found that if you do spend the time like people will reward you for that like they're they're like you came here all right we're here for you like the next yeah. time you come like we'll come see you again you know well, yeah
0: because they're i i don't think it, it's 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 like, I never get the feeling that there's a big market for my comedy down there, but they, they do come out, a few people, mm-hmm. and they'll come out again. But there's something very uh, kind of um, homogenized about Florida in its Floridaness. Yes. Like, you know, y- you feel that, that people that may be like-minded to you or I are, are either kids or they're stuck there for some reason. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I get the feeling that most people, they don't even want to go indoors, really, uh, right. in Florida. You, you know, they just want to, like, hang out uh-huh. and maybe have a cocktail. <laughs> it's a, it doesn't strike me as this cultural center of things happening unless it's for retired people.
2: Right, and I hate to, and obviously, like, I hate to dismiss areas like that because, yeah. you know, frankly, like, in those kinds of places is where maybe some people are driven to make, like, the weirdest shit you know what I mean because they're like I'm isolated but I have ideas so you're in junior high and then you you, did you end up going to college right so in, in junior high and high school I found out about is when I learned about punk rock because there's hardcore bands in, in Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill. But you were just a mainstream rock guy before I that? I was just like main, like the, the Who, ACDC, you know, mainstream rock, yeah. classic rock. Yeah. Like I loved it. My my dad like had the radio on all the time in the car, like yeah. it was, that was what I was into. Yeah. yeah. And then, but you know, there's college radio stations and I heard punk rock on there As well as weird or like 80s things, you know, like Dream Syndicate or bands like that. Dream Syndicate. Yeah, you know, stuff like that. Rain Parade. Days of Ronnie and Roses. The thing is, like, when you tried to go see a band like the Meat Puppets, for instance, I tried to sneak in to see the Meat Puppets under. Because you were a
0: kid. Yeah, but I
2: couldn't. I tried, couldn't get in. The guy, actually, the guy from the Meat Puppet, there's a. Which guy? There's a club in. I, I think it was Kirk. There's a club in Chapel Hill called the Cat's Cradle. It's still there, but this is like in a different location. Yeah. It's pretty small, maybe held like 250 people. Yeah and so uh, any band that you heard on college radio if they're playing in town that's probably where they were playing and so Meat Puppets were playing it's Meat Puppets 2 tour and I'm like I'm just gonna go I would try this the dumbest idea it's like I'm just gonna get in there so early that (laughs) they won't notice I'll sweep over (laughs) yeah I'll just like Uh, be in there during sound check and just kind of like shrink back in a booth I'll go in when they make the keg delivery so I'm hanging out outside and and, uh, I was like you know I I really like your band but I can't go to the show tonight because I'm not old enough the guy's like here take this guitar like hands me the guitar case, he's like, Just walk in behind me. I'm like, this is not gonna work. I'm gonna try it. Yeah. Walking in, like, I feel a hand on my shoulder as soon as I walk past the, the guy at the door, Billy. And uh Is he still there? You still he's still there and he of course he knew that I was, you know, fifteen or whatever. And um but I was like so it was so cool that they tried to get me in, you yeah. know. But anyway, so so like uh but at hardcore shows they were all ages shows. And so that was the first bands I could really go see without my parents. Yeah. Was like punk rock bands. Yeah. And that was such a huge thing for I think anyone growing up in that era who got into punk rock What did you see? Well there's a local band called Corrosion of Conformity. It yeah. Still exists. And no. Th- yeah. And and they were not only big in North Carolina, but they became big around the 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 country. And so even when I moved to New York, they would play CBs and sell it out. But do they still live in North Carolina? They do. They yeah. do. Yeah. And uh so there's a band called C O C. They were kind of the biggest local band, then you know, lots of touring punk bands would, would come through, obviously like Suicidal tendencies, Agent Orange. It's like West Coast bands, um, Bad Brains, like you know, Descendants, Black Flag, like all these bands would come through, and it's always an all ages show, so you could see all this stuff, and it was like it was very like empowering, not only to be able to go to see bands by yourself with your friends without your parents, but also just to see these people that were much older than you. You're like oh, I could do that. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And knock, I want to do that. And you just know? knocking it out.
0: I mean, it's so smart that they did it all ages. That that yeah. it's interesting because I never really thought about it that way. That the independent spirit of punk rock was completely driven by kids. You know, you know, both playing and saying like, "Fuck, we don't need to adhere to club standards. We don't need to try to get booked. Even all right. we got to do is." Have someone hook us up with a fucking place that can hold 100 people and
2: do it. Yeah, and so so people would put on shows and, you know, Like, where were the
0: shows? Like, skate
2: rinks and, you know, Mason yeah, it's Halls? It's funny, there was, a, there was a skating rink. There was? Yeah, yeah, there was a skating rink in Raleigh that, that had hardcore shows. There was a couple clubs that would do all-ages shows and just not so like alcohol. Like, during the day? During the day. There was a, um, one of my favorite shows I ever saw was the Minutemen and with a band called Honor Roll that's from Richmond. Um, Virginia. You saw the Minutemen. I saw the Minutemen in a church basement in Durham. This church called St. Joseph's Church. Wow, must have been after the AA meeting. And it was like, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I think it's a little too dingy even have an AA meeting in there. It was like a. It was an unfinished basement. Yeah. let say, but there was a stage in there, and they would have sh- hardcore shows there, and it was. It was incredible just to see this stuff that was like blowing your mind up close. And these were powerhouse fucking musicians. Yeah. I mean the the Minutemen were were powerful man. Oh yeah, and they were they were pretty well known at, at, already at that time. That was on the double nickels on the dime tour. And uh so getting to see that stuff in like the money? most random places just made you think like anyone can do anything. Like if I can see the Minutemen in a church basement, Anything can happen, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, how, how did those? How did they? They did, were they able to make money or just get by? I'm I mean, sure
2: that there was, I'm sure there were promoters that that didn't do right by the bands, but I think for the most part, you're doing a door deal. Right. A kid's putting on the show. Right. He goes, I'm going to charge five dollars, and, <laughs> and if two hundred people come, you get a thousand dollars or whatever. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know. They would just get most of the door. Bands would get most of the door. So if no one comes, you're kind of screwed. But if people come, you get paid, and me can get gas, food. I mean, you know, I think it was probably pretty different than the idea of like someone actually getting a guarantee. Right. You know, of a certain amount of money.
0: Well, yeah, you're just sort of winging it. And I don't even know how people fucking communicated. You had to set this tour up and trust people. Like, because there was no real internet, right? No. so you There's you, not even fax machines at this point. Yeah, you're just making phone calls. Yeah. And some kids are like, yeah, it's cool.
2: Here's the address. Well, it was- so you don't know what the fuck you're even driving into. It was amazing to get a copy of Maxim Rock and Roll, uh, which is like a, you know, hardcore fanzine. Yeah. Printed on newsprint. And in the back there was scene reports, and so like anyone, like you could just write a scene report about your town. Yeah, and they publish it like scene report for Raleigh. You know, Descendants came through and played an amazing show. <laughs> yeah. You know, my band Bloodmobile opened. We were awesome. <laughs> I mean, just kind of like that 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 <laughs> yeah. kind of thing was great. And so, and you'd see that like in other towns, like oh my gosh, like look at what all these people are doing in these other towns. We could do that here. But also, I think that there was a lot of contacts. Like, if you want to book a show. In North Carolina, called this guy, and so bands would just do that. And all would, based on this uh, on Maxim. Yeah, all all, all on Maxim Rock and Roll. Like the, you know, you Maximum find, Rock and Roll. Maximum Rock and Roll. You find out anything you need in the back of Maximum Rock and Roll at that time. It was it was incredible, and so people get famous. Like promoters, like you'd be like, oh, you're going to do a show in Philly. Obviously, you're going to do it with this guy, like yeah. the guy who does all the Philly shows. Right. You know? And so that's how the network. Did, was did, created now as a guy that stayed in the business and actually found
0: success in a label I mean how many of those guys like on the promoter level or on the musician level actually continued to to build into uh, a, an empire or or into a a, a sort of uh, a remain in the business
2: I mean that's a good question but a lot of the people that I mean look we just played uh, at Coachella which is a festival that's put on by golden Voice at least partially by Golden Voice which is an la organization that puts on shows there have been around since the punk era doing stuff and now they're putting on the biggest festival in north america music festival you know what i mean and and you know so i do find that i mean it's interesting you ask that question because i do find that when i think about who i work with and i think about their connections to that era i go like they are from that like so many people do still work in music from that era um, who started out maybe putting on all ages shows. It always fascinates me especially with people on the other side
0: of the business and the business I'm in is that as an artist you know you don't fucking know what's going to happen to you you like right. you don't know if you're going to nail it you don't know if you're going to lose because as you get older and you know this as well as I do you know people who chose the lives that we have chosen you, a lot of people get lost Yeah, a lot of people disappear a lot of it gets sad but the guys on the other side of the business you, you know you start to realize about them it's like they had a fucking plan from day one our plan was like we're going to rock or yeah. you know I'm gonna be a great comedian but they're like I'm gonna build this out I'm gonna have a you know an empire. But who plans that? Who do you think some has that plan? plan? They do? I think do? some people have foresight, especially people who, you know, who understand that that the nature of that business. I mean I think some people luck into it, but I also think like those are the guys like I never thought about making money. You know, I, I just
2: assumed right. it would come. But the dudes who think about making money, that's what they want to do. They want to make money. But I always had the feeling that if we thought about that we would definitely not make money. In fact, we would probably just well, make yeah. some terrible decisions, but right? When,
0: yeah, but when yeah. you're a promoter, all you're thinking about is making money.
2: Right, but but I think the important thing is that guys that started out booking all-ages shows or yeah. booking punk shows in their hometowns, they weren't thinking about money then, and by the time they did think about money, they were far enough into it that maybe they had taken something with them from that sure. time period of like, this is how you treat people. I feel I feel like one thing that I really like about having been in a band for so long is that you collect these uh, memories or images of people that you associate with certain clubs like that in, 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 in the network around the clubs that you played over and over again, whether it's like First Avenue in Minneapolis or uh you know uh great american music hall or in san francisco like this place all over that that you just end up playing over and over again kind of and you just have like a comfort level there there might be things you hate about those places or that you love about them but you just kind of like we know how this works yeah. you know what i mean like you just get kind of used to doing this thing and um even though like now like we don't tour nearly as much as we used to we hardly tour at all compared to how much we used to tour And I don't like being away from home because I have a family. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I do miss that aspect of it, that thing of, like, there's a larger community out here that, like, even though we're in North Carolina, we're all part of this scene. And, like, we know that when we go to Olympia, we see calvin or whatever you know like we know that when we're in austin we we go eat breakfast at this place after every show you know like it's like being it's being in real life you know you make the trip
0: you take a drive yeah they are the old friends you know i do that with some you know with some uh you know comedy communities but like it just seems like that whole thing i guess it still exists it's a young man's game but 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 the the feeling of being out in the world and in life and in and you know dealing with adversity of just performing in certain places
2: it's very exciting it is and and it's like even though there's i mean and i and i go back and forth about it because we definitely play shows now where we were in helsinki in december and copenhagen there was a hurricane and it's five degrees outside and like 20 people at the show and and you're like like what are we doing here (laughs) we don't don't have to do this anymore you know what I mean but then part of me is like we're in Helsinki yeah but the the 20 people that are here are like the best fans we've ever had because they're here there's a hurricane The, the government has told people to stay in their houses yet these people are like at our show at this squat how was the show I mean, I thought it was great. And you might ask other people in the band. They might have a different idea about that. But well, i would, that was back in the day. You were at a squat? No, this is in December. This is like last December. <laughs> Super junk is playing a squat in Helsinki during I mean, a, a hurricane. You're still living it, Mac. I mean, you know, par- part of me is like, oh, my God, we're still living it. And part of me is like, we're still living it. You know, it's like it's a very it's a two-sided thing that I think that we kind of are reckoning with all the time. Like, what is what is worth doing at this at this point right you know what i mean but But, but,
0: okay well let's go back though so you you start playing in junior high and high school you get your first uh you know guitar you're in a band that's based around the sound of an ovation breadwinner yeah and then you know what what are your what's your what's your old man's feelings about what you're doing what where
2: you know how my parents are very supportive of like the whole thing it's kind of amazing like i had nothing to rebel against in that sense did you go to college yeah, I went to Columbia in New York. You did, yeah, for the full ride. Yeah, a hey, smart guy. So I lived in, <laughs> yeah. so I lived in uh, New York from like '85 to '90. But I took, how
0: does that go? So you, you throughout high school, you're playing in bands, and obviously you're not a fucking disaster. You got the grades and the push to go to Columbia. So you're managing your life. You're not a drunk. You're not throwing it away, right? Uh, and you're playing in bands, but Superchunk is not
2: formed until after college. Superchunk's not formed. Like I was in a band in high school, and like our biggest gig, which was. Genuinely big for us was opening for Tommy Keen mm-hmm. uh, at the Cat's Cradle, which was. I remember him. Awesome, mm-hmm. Tommy's great, and uh, so and that. But we did like comment like we did our own songs, but also you know you're like doing the Bunny Men covers, your you what know Pretenders covers, pneumatic underground. There you go, very high school yeah. band name, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, and then in college, I had that band Wax, and also a band called Slush Puppies. But those bands were in North Carolina, so we would just play when I was home on vacation, on, yeah, thing. during the summer, yeah. So you didn't record with them? Recorded some some singles. And mm-hmm. before we started Merge.
0: Who recorded the singles? Did you guys self-produce them? How that
2: uh, work? We, we recorded them at this, um, mainly at this studio called Duck Key Studios, which is in Raleigh. Uh, it's just in this guy's house. A uh, Similar situation to this, you know, just like set up in his house. 16 or maybe it started as 8-track and then 16-track. And all the bands recorded there. And the guy, Jerry Keys, the engineer, he still has a studio in his house. He moved it out in the country a little bit. Mm-hmm. He was just great to work with, and he's like any band that came in. You know, he's like, "I'm game to, to do whatever you weird weirdos are gonna do in here." <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there are some weird bands, um, and it was great having that resource of like a cheap place to record. And the fact that it was in someone's house, I think, took some of the mystery a- out of it. Like, no one could psych you out and make yeah. you feel like you didn't know what you were doing because you're in their studio. Right? He was just like, "No, we're just make, like are just recording your music." You know? Right? Right? There's no, there's nothing crazy going. Yeah, on. Yeah, yeah! 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 And so, um, and we all ended up, we'd put a, a box set together of seven inches by all these bands right before we started Merge. So it's like 87, a, 88. Uh, myself, a guy named Wayne Taylor, um, a couple named Bill and Barbara printed the silkscreen, the the covers. They have a silkscreen company. They make So this was a business idea
0: that you had, to do regional bands in a box set. I
2: think it was like all of us together thought, like, all these bands exist now. We're probably all gonna break up in a year or something like that. And let's, this is after college or during? This is during. Yeah. Like, let's put out some... Let's make it an artifact, basically. And so we made a box set of five, seven inches, one by each of these bands, and then had a couple like record release shows where we played, all the bands played, and we put out the records. And Wayne kind of knew how all this worked. This guy, Wayne, who's also in Wax. And he, and that whole thing kind of demystified the record making process for us because we're like, oh, like you just send the tapes to the to pressing plant united record And and you pressing? get them back did united it, you, I, no we did it in a different place we didn't start using united till we started merge but, i learned um, a whole lesson taking that tour of united like you know oh yeah that's that amazing they
0: are almost like they're like sweden they're they're non-denominational they don't have any politics yeah. they'll press whatever comes in man
2: if you're going to pay for the record they'll press the record i think one of the only issues we ever had was that there was a record that had a picture of elvis on the label uh-huh. that, uh that was a rocket from the crypt 7 inch yeah and i think they're like we can't, can't we can't we can't put Elvis on the yeah. we can't put a picture of Elvis on here like yeah. you, you don't have the rights to that right right <laughs> so yeah. we don't want to get in trouble I think we did that somewhere else All
0: right so you figure it out you demystify the process and so you graduate college and you're like I'm fucking in and that's when we started merge like we started merge about
2: the year before I graduated but did you start it before Superchunk um we did because I was I was in a band in college just with my my roommates basically called Bricks and we just recorded on a four track played live a few times uh the uh, the space at chase that was another club downtown but we played it also at the cb's canteen which is next to next, cb's so they it's like the the gallery app. now cb's yeah. gallery yeah so uh, uh it's not there and none of it's there anymore right yeah so i had this band bricks that was like our bedroom thing and when we started merge the first thing we put out was a cassette by bricks um and again it was more like it wasn't like all right we're gonna put this out and become like a band it was more like let's just we went to the trouble of writing these songs let's just document this thing and put it out there so then we but had, you
0: had like the, the idea of the of the label at that time i mean since you're you're a musician you had the band and everything but you you obviously there, this was the time of indie labels as well mm-hmm. i mean it was starting correct yeah that was a viable way to get your shit out in the world before the internet and before you, you know to, to sort of work around uh major labels and trying to
2: find a way to distribute your own music right because i guess for us what was not appealing was the idea of let's make a demo and then hope that someone else will be interested. Well, it's like we're already interested ourselves. So like, let's just do it ourselves. You know, like why have that extra step and w- and like hope someone else is into but it? But did you think you would make money? No, no, no. It was it was really just like a, <laughs> it was almost just like an art project. Right. It's like we recorded this stuff ourselves. Let's put it out ourselves, and then you know make a hundred tapes. Who's? It's not a big investment. It was on tape. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, cassette only. <laughs> First two releases were cassettes. We didn't have enough money to press records. Do you still have them? Uh yeah okay. yeah yeah and then like, do you have boxes? No, in them? <laughs> we literally had like a, a dubbing deck. You know, like a, oh really? Yeah, that was like our first big expenditure as a label is to buy a dubbing deck yeah. to make sit there and run cassettes off at like high speeds. I'm sure they sound terrible. So we did a wax cassette and a bricks cassette. And then we borrowed some money from a friend of ours named uh, Lydia Ely, who lives in San Francisco now, and she lent us money for the first chunk single, um, and. Uh, or maybe it was the the metal pitcher single, which was a band that Laura and I had before Chunk on existed on vinyl. Seven it's inches. so funny
0: to me that like everything we're talking about it doesn't exist anymore. That like obviously records do, but yeah. the ability to record your own music, the the idea that. You know, you got four-track, you got four to go to analog. Yeah. And then you're going to have to rip it onto cassette and then fucking dub those cassettes or yeah. get the masters to a label. But everything was sort of like, there was just machinery around. Yeah, there
2: was machinery for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was all very like hand Yeah, put yeah. together, everything, yeah. you know. And you're cutting things on a splicer sometimes. Oh yeah, you're at Kinko's, like making like, making like running off the labels on a Xerox machine and then peeling them off and sticking them <laughs> on the cassette. I mean... Yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, All right, think so about you borrow now. some money for the vinyl release, and we so we start doing seven inches, and so then the first series of seven inches was like either by Chunk, which was what our band was called at the time, or by other local bands, and sometimes even they would put up like half the money to have the thing pressed, and then we would sell them, and then pay the band back. But it wasn't again, it wasn't really like oh, if we sell this, we can make some money. It was just like let's just hopefully we make our money back. Right. Don't lose. And money. sometimes
0: you'd have to. You'd, you'd give, you give the band would buy like a couple hundred copies to tour with. Right. Yeah.
2: Sure. The band sell them on tour. That was like kind of their payment. Was like, okay, you get ten percent of the pressing. Right. You're not going to get any money from us, but like, you get ten percent of the pressing. You sell those on tour. Maybe that's your money that you right. make. Right. Right. Um, but mostly we were all just like we have a record with our name on it. Like yeah, that yeah. was all we and really wanted. Yeah, yeah. We get to do the cover art. Yeah. Um. So that was like the most exciting thing about it. And it just kind of grew from there to the point where, uh we were we could sell enough to make enough to press the next thing we were doing. And at the time, I mean, this is one thing that's really different from now. At the time, if you put out a seven-inch that was good and got reviewed in a few fanzines yeah. and played on a few college radio stations, you could get noticed right? in a way. Like, we did our first Superchunk tour with two sing- seven-inches out. Now, like, you put out two seven-inches, I don't know how anyone hears about that. Right. You know, because there's just so much stuff Always, you know? always
0: a lot of stuff you gotta you gotta wade through.
2: Yeah, and I feel like at the time it was a little bit easier. Smaller world. It was a smaller world, and and even though there's a lot more record stores, those record stores had you know people would actually like look yeah. through the seven inches and see what the new seven inches were. And know? and now what was the the shift in the name just from Chunk to Super Chunk? Well, there's a band in New York, uh, kind of a Knitting Factory associated band called Chunk. Right. Sam Bennett is like a percussionist, and he had this band called Chunk. And around the time we were talking to Gerard Cosway about signing to Matador, um, we said, he said, you know, there's this band called Chunk in New York already. I said, and we we're like, oh, he's like, well, let me just, he said, I can ask them if you can also use the name because you're so different. It's not. Right. That's more of like an improv thing. And yeah. you guys are rock band. And he came back and said, no, he says you can't use it. Right. So. We had to just come up with something, and it was—it's really hard to come up with band. So names. why were
0: you meeting with Matador if you were self-releasing?
2: Because all we could do was singles, like yeah. all we could afford to do was singles, and we wanted to put out an album. So in our mind, like, we can't do an album, like that's like making CDs and LPs and cassettes, and like you know, let's the infrastructure, the business infrastructure was not something you guys had in mind. We and we just didn't have it. And, yeah, and and but we also knew that we loved Homestead, where Gerard had been and we wanted to to be on his label. Matador is a big label. Yeah, we were, I mean, at the time, it was Gerard and Chris and maybe one or two other people And because Gerard was just starting it after leaving Homestead. Uh, You know, I mean, it obviously became like an amazing label. Well, that's interesting
0: because those, you know, like between Pavement and Guided by Voices and you guys, there was, uh, you know, that was, it's interesting that it all evolved out of this punk rock sensibility, but it sort of redefined what became alternative rock mm-hmm. i guess and and it, which was really more pop driven than than punk
2: yeah i think that i mean i think that one thing that we had always i mean we're talking about Husker du i mean husker du is like a punk band that had very melodic yeah songs right. and like that combination was always kind of what appealed to right. me anyway like buzzcocks right. husker du like i certainly like stuff that was purely loud and fast and you know right. just goes by in a blinding second without right. any melody in particular yeah. but I really latched on to those bands. I mean, mm-hmm. a band like Dinosaur Jr. is like so melodic. It's like all oh, yeah. melodies, the guitar solos are melodies, the vocals yeah. are melodies, it's like it's all beautiful. It's like you know? someone
0: said, hey, there are minor chords. You know? I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, it, it's just like. We, we can get past three chords, we can add a couple. Well, it's real songs, yeah. you know? And and I think that the, that's what has allowed us to still exist as a band, even is that we were based on songs more than like a sound or a right anything else, you know. Right. So, so you signed how many records did you do at Matador? So we did uh, three records with Matador, and then and by, that built your following. And that built our following, and um, at, by that point, Merge had also grown to a point where we could do full lengths on Merge. We, we Merge started working with a label in Ch- Chicago called Touch and Go, uh-huh. and they kind of gave us the the infrastructure to do full length records. And so we started doing obviously our own records, but also a band called Palvo from North Carolina was one of the first full lengths we did. Magnetic Fields from Boston was one of the first full lengths we did. Um, band called Lamb Chop from uh, Nashville, and uh, we even started working with bands from overseas like uh, the Three Ds from New Zealand. Like once you can do full length albums, then it opens you up to being able to say to a band like we can really put out your record, right. And not just do your single. You and know what what I mean? would what, you do for distribution? So we had, uh, so Touch and Go was a distributor. Okay. um, And they would, uh, so it was like a manufacturing distribution deal, basically. Um, And who was producing the records? The bands. always it was all self-produced. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And so, I mean, that's one thing that we've always kind of left, I mean, uh, that's what I always assumed, that's how I always assumed things worked in punk rock, was that, like, you're the band, like, you make the decisions, like, you, you know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. like, if we love your band it's because we like your ideas so like why would we then say you should really work with so and so to right. make this next record you know, right because then, the then you're a suit yeah exactly Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right Um. so so the bands would generally just turn in their record when it was done be like here's our record you they'd know? go record it on their own yeah right yeah um, and Uh. and it just it just started like that and then you know like once you end up working with a few great bands then you have a good reputation because people are like I love magnetic fields I'd like to work with those people. But I think that we still saw uh, Superchunk as like our job. Right. I mean, as like our main thing. Sure. You know. Yeah. Um, You're a rock band. Yeah. We're touring, you know, three or four months out of the year, probably, sometimes maybe more, um, and making records like at a pretty rapid rapid pace that eventually slowed down in the in the late 90s just because we I think we just got burnt out on that cycle yeah you know yeah well I mean you did a bunch of records and you're getting older
0: yeah yeah. and, and Worcester's running around playing for everybody
2: that's right John John has like a multifaceted <laughs> career in music comedy yeah. writing yeah. you know what I mean How, acting and, and you've known him forever I've known John uh, I think I met John I've known John's brother for longer than I've known John John's older brother Lane but um but John, I met uh, through through friends through Lane, but also through friends in Chapel Hill. And when I saw his band play at one point, he was playing with a band called uh, the um, Accelerators. And so I'd seen him play drums. And then when things didn't seem to be working out with Chuck, our first drummer, after doing a couple albums and some, some good deal of touring, uh, someone recommended John. And I was like, "Wow, like I've seen him play. He's he's awesome." Yeah. Know? And. Um, and so we got in touch, and I don't remember how many rehearsals we had before the first show that he played, but it was not very many. Um, and so that was I guess 90, 91 I think. So how
0: does it become because i I, I feel I mean you guys are you know you, it's like me in comedy. it's like that's that's where your heart is. that's what you came up in. but at some point, I have to imagine that the label became the bread and butter of of you know how you were making a living.
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think that Laura and I didn't pay ourselves for merge until. Eight or nine years into the label existing, the bass player. Yeah, yeah. Were you guys romantically involved? We were when we started both those things, the band and the and the label. Uh huh. Um, And so, how did that end? So we were, so we were a couple. It ended protractedly, I would say. Uh, And so we were a couple until ninety three, I guess. Um, And uh, that must have been crazy. It's kind of crazy, but it is also that thing of like when you're on t- obviously it seemed much more monumental then yeah even though now you think about it and it's like a f- you know a four or five year period in your life is yeah. not su- it's not such a as such a big deal But of course it was like a big deal and we spent all our time around each other because yeah. we had the label and the band you know what i mean yeah. like we're not doing anything else yeah um except being around each other so obviously it was weird and probably even weirder for For John and Jim at that point. You know what I mean? Like, what's (laughs) the deal with you two? What are you doing? (laughs) Um, But it was, but you know, we never really had an idea to break up the band or stop the label. Like, it was just kind of like, well, this. How'd you end up so fucking grown up? This isn't done. Where's the drama? This isn't working anymore, but we spent so much time and energy on these other two things. Why would we also toss that out? You know what I mean? And you got along still. Well, I mean, that's. They. (laughs) Maybe not going, putting it a little bit more smoothly than it actually went for a while, but I mean, I think that we—I mean, we we certainly get along now, and uh, I think that even Do your kids hang out with each other. Not all the time, but I mean, if we're if we're all out at like a rock yeah. festival together outside, right. or right. like the farmers market, or something like that. Do they live you in you know. the neighborhood, kind of deal. No, because they Laura lives in Durham, okay, and we live in Chapel Hill, right. so it's not like walking walking distance. And you married a, a famous chef. I, I did. Um, now, I, now she, I have to say, she was not famous when I married her, so I didn't marry her for her fame. Yeah, you you weren't climbing by marrying right. a chef in North Carolina, right? Okay, right. her restaurant's very good, by the way. Andrea's chef, and she has a uh, a great restaurant uh, called Lantern, but um, in Chapel Hill's very yeah, good. In Chapel Hill,
0: I'll plug her restaurant. I can
2: I can vouch for the restaurant. All right, so here so, we are. You, you're you're so you're, we're no longer a couple. But we still have these two things that are both going pretty strong at that point. And so we just kind of, I would just say we just kind of plowed through. You know what I mean? And like touring kind of sucked with the person that you just broke up with after going out with for five years. But again, we just kind of, I mean, one thing about touring is that you're already kind of like on everyone's nerves that's all around you. So it's just one more person to be on the nerves of, you know what I mean? So I've not talked to somebody who has a record label. So how do you like, you know, who were the
0: the original bands when you really sort of felt it was becoming a business and you were making started to make money? So
2: you had Superchunk and who else was on the label? So we're talking mid nineties, uh, Palvo, Magnetic Fields, three uh, Ds. We did the first Corner Shop record, a uh, band called Butter Glory. Yeah, Lamb Chop. Uh huh. Um. We eventually worked with Neutral Milk Hotel. That was, I think, the first record was '96, maybe. I never got them. Um, and they were great. Yesterday at Coachella, by the way, they were amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, and the roster just kind of grew and grew. Beatnik Film Stars, a band from England, that we worked with. Um, um, so you're doing all right. Yeah. So the so the the labels the labels kind of growing, and a couple of things were were kind of milestones for us one was the Magnetic Fields record called um, 69 Love Songs which was the kind of perfect thing to I mean he had made great records before but doing something that on kind of an audacious scale literally like writing 69 Love Songs which I think was supposed to be 100 and then he just shortened it to 69 because that seemed more doable (laughs) somehow Uh, putting out a three CD box set of like all original songs was just like it was like a news story for people it was like a way to to try to get their minds around this guy Stephen Merritt is writing these incredible songs um and it's so solid for a record that has 69 songs on it it's like you can actually just listen to it you're not skipping over songs you know what I mean um and that was at that time became like our biggest selling record I Uh mean I remember at the time he said you know we we want to be a box set and and together with touch and go we kind of thought thought like man like okay, we'll make like 2,000 of the box set because that's for like the hardcore fans and other people are just going to want to buy like one, one, two, or three. Like they're right. not going to go all in. Right. But the box set just went crazy and we couldn't make enough. And so, you know, that thing ended up selling like over 100,000 copies. Wow. Yeah. Which for us at the time was like, again, like this is, I've always thought that like we're while we're in the music business, we're kind of just, we're not really in like what people think of as the music right. business because for us, for the music business at large, 100,000 records is not a lot of records. Right. But for us, it was like life changing. Yeah. Like what What the, you yeah. know, like crazy. Yeah. Um. And so that was, that was amazing for us. And then that followed soon after by Neutral Milk Hotel in the airplane over the sea, which became a hugely important record for like a ton of people. And still is, as is evidenced by the touring that that band can do now. This this many years later. But after. do
0: you still have the rights of that record? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. So you actually have, you know, between some of the the people that have evolved into larger bands, uh, you still have some of that catalog.
2: Yeah, and I feel like that that is again kind of going, even though like none of these records are punk rock records. But going back to the idea of like, what did you learn from punk? Well, you know, like treating people well yeah. that you work with, right. Not being an asshole, and the fact that, like, as a someone in a band, like you value the artist that you're working with, and you know, having been on record labels, you know what you do and don't want from a record label, right as an artist, right? Yeah. you know how you want to be treated and how you don't want to be treated, and I think that that leads to relationships that we have with artists where we're still working with them 20 years later or 30 years later. Unbelievable. You know? So what was, wait, but
0: after the success, I mean, what were the the struggles in terms of like, well, how do we, was there conversations of, uh, do we need a bigger distributor? Do we need to, you know, partner up with, uh, you know, with, with the major label? I mean, I don't really know how that works because I know Matador now is
2: part of Beggar's Group that, and I don't even know how that kind of thing happens. I mean, that conversation kind of came at us from the other side, major labels coming to us saying like, hey, how can we work together? Right. And our attitude was always like, we can't work together because <laughs> we've seen how that goes. <laughs> and, and and not to be a jerk about it, but I just mean like there was literally never a time when we were like, we need help or we need cash and or we You weren't, you we weren't need, greedy. Well, right. And also like, talk about like a fuck you to everyone that you've ever worked with. Like, oh, we signed a merge and now we're on what label? Sony? Y- y- yeah, 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 you know what I mean? So- yeah. It just, it really wasn't ever tempting though. There was certainly, and and the people that we were talking to were like very nice people who were, and were into music. It's not like you're just talking to someone who's like, I'm looking at your bottom line, seeing that we can make some money. Like they're into the bands. right? But like, it just didn't make sense for us ever to do that.
0: But all the bands were coming to you because
2: they liked bands who were on the label primarily. I mean, I think that as, as the label gets bigger, obviously some people are just like, we've heard of Merge, like, you let's know, do it yeah uh, yeah they're interested yeah but but um that's always the weird thing about the artist sort of like someone likes us Let's right, <laughs> right let them put the record out they like us i mean i think that i think that it did have a lot to do with it though because i think that um i mean even you know when from the arcade fire said that like you know they were fans of the magnetic fields you know um mike you put out all the arcade fire records yeah those are big records they are big records <laughs> There are our biggest <laughs> records, for sure. What about, and, and how did, did you, you were with Spoon early on? Yeah, we did, um, Spoon was on Matador, yeah, and then signed to a major label, and the, which just decidedly did not go well for them, and then were dropped. And then we started working with them right after that, and then we did their next. You did big records with them? Yeah. So um, was there
0: ever a time where, where business wasn't good? Or was yeah, just, from I mean, the mid-90s? Th- did it just kind of build out?
2: It, it kind of built out, but I th- there's ov- there's obviously like mixed in there's kind of just off years depending on what came out that year. And I think that one thing that um, we've always been good at and and caution is kind of like that's really Laura's department, like being cautionary and conservative when it comes to spending money, yeah, or or hiring or spending money on marketing or wh- whatever, all the things decisions you have to make. Uh, was that we've never been real crazy about that. We've never tried to grow too fast, right? I mean, maybe we've actually grown too slow in some situations and not been able to keep up with stuff the way we could have been able to. But on the plus side, that means that like, if we do have a down year, we're kind of prepared for it because we've never gotten so big that like, oh my god, like if we don't, you're gonna start if we don't sell this many, hemorrhaging, we money. have to start firing people right. or something. You know what I mean? How big is the operation? I now? mean, believe me, I have that dream all the time that like that's gonna happen. But knock on wood, so far like. It's it's grown at a pace that we can deal with. And how know. big is the operation now? So I think there's 18 people that work there now, oh, including Laura and I. Yeah, uh, offices in Durham. Yeah, actually, actually, a designer lives in Canada. She moved from Durham to Canada, but she's great. So we and kept you her.
0: and and so and now you have how many bands on
2: the label? I can never answer that question because like there's so many bands, and there's so many there's like a certain amount of active bands, and then there's bands that like. They're still on Merge, even though they haven't put out a record in five or six years, you know. And what's your Um, relationship
0: with them? Do you ever ask them,
2: like, what's going on, fellas? We check in. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like we (laughs) I got nothing. it's It's a wide variety of people that we work with, you know, like East River Pipe. I don't know if we've sent you any of that, if you've heard that, but it's a guy named Fred Kornog who lives in New Jersey. He's never played live. Yeah. He's never toured. Yeah. He's put out amazing records, and he just records them at home at his own pace, and so like- when the record's ready, like, we get a record, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so there's that, for everything from that to bands that are, like, really, like, we're making our record, here's how we want the rollout to happen, here's when we're touring, like, you know, like, planned out down to, like, the the, the dot.
0: But with somebody like R. K. Fire, that's such a huge band now, um, you know, what's your involvement with that? And they, they you know, who's
2: the distributor on that? So the distributor on the new one is... Uh, capital which is different than it has been in the past well why what's your relationship with capital how does that relationship happen we don't really have a relationship with capital other does. than we're like the band does exactly yeah. so we're working with the band and capital all together on this but new they're signed record. to you
0: yeah so you do a percentage split with capital
2: we do yes yeah and huh. with the
0: band like it's all and that's big distribution know. though i mean it that is. helps you in the long run
2: you know it helps Hopefully it helps everyone. Yeah. That's the idea. But I think what, what the band really wanted to do was just to make sure that, I mean, they have grand ideas, you know, like they do things on a large scale mm-hmm. and they wanted to make sure that that was all going to happen on the scale that they wanted it to happen and um, that the records were going to be everywhere and the marketing was going to be everywhere. Right. Um, which is, it, I mean, that is slightly out of our wheelhouse for the way that we normally right. do things, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but, uh You know, it's like, again, I feel like we relate to Arcade Fire like we relate to all the other bands we work with as like, you know, partners in a way, you know, I mean, it's like they're, I'm always hesitant to give Merge credit really just because without the bands, like we're not doing anything, you know what I mean? Like they, they send us amazing records to put out and then it's our job to make sure people know about it.
0: Okay, so you walked, to, you know, you you came through my house. You see that I've I'm recently re obsessed or more obsessed than I've ever been with vinyl. I mean, what is your relationship with actual vinyl records? Has that business changed now? I mean, is it really happening again? Are people buying records? Do you what? What? How do you feel like? Because I know a lot of your business has to be digital, but I mean, you send me records. What's yeah. your relationship with records?
2: Well, it's funny because I always have to ask... I didn't have to ask you because I listen to your podcast, but mostly I have to ask someone, like, hey, I want to send you some music. Like, how do you want it? Like CDs, LPs, or just a download. Some people are like, download's great. Yeah. But, like, I have... Like, my, my relationship with vinyl is kind of what it always has been, is, like, I buy a lot of it. I love listening to it. And I find that I become much more attached to any record that I get on vinyl than I ever do if I just... I mean I use iTunes. I think it's a great service actually. And yeah. we obviously sell a lot of records on right. iTunes. But I don't I forget what I have in my computer. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, like, I have my hard drive full of shit that I never listened it's, to. It's, it's just in there somewhere and I love my iPod book for the convenience of it, but MP3s frankly do hurt my ears after a while. They do. They do. You have to
0: readjust the vinyl because you like even listening to it. You're like, how come it's not as satisfying? It's because like digital music's like crack. I mean, you can just blast it out. It's all coming at the same fucking you know. Yeah, typed
2: up in this weird way. But like the nuance of listening to stuff on vinyl is like, oh okay, it was I, smaller than that. And I feel like it's a time relationship because you know, like if we. Would go downtown to get the new album by The Fall, for instance. Yeah. Maybe you could afford to buy like two or three records. Yeah. You bring them back, and you're like, that's what you're listening to for the next week. Right. Over and over again. Yeah. And you have to stay near, like, you physically have to be near the turntable to turn the thing over. Yeah. So you're just, you're not just like, I'm put this on and then just do a hundred things. Yeah. Like I'm putting this on. I'm like listening to this record. Like. Yeah. And I found that because our CD player broke like a while ago. Yeah. And before getting a new one, I was like. Oh wow, we're just like listening to records all the time now. Like this is awesome, you know what I yeah. mean? And uh, I feel like, like I said, I think it's a time relationship because if you're listening to a record for the time it takes to like listen to it, flip it over, listen to the other side, you have to look at the cover at some point in there. Like that is some that is time you've spent with that music. That is like s- devoted to that music. Even if you're like paying your bills or whatever while it's on, like it's you have to be close by and you're involved in the right. process. Yeah. And so and it I've, does sound different. Yeah, it does. It does sound different, and it's it's a different feeling. And I feel like part of our. I mean, to answer your question about how is vinyl doing, vinyl is selling really well compared to how it was for a while. There, yeah. I think the new Superchunk record has sold maybe a third vinyl, a third CD, and a third digital. Uh-huh. That's not necessarily typical for all the records we put out, but right. like, so vinyl is selling a lot more than than it did than it than it used to. Uh, in the, say, late 90s, early 2000s, but it's not selling enough to replace all the people that aren't buying anything anymore. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, it's a two-edged sword. Everyone's like, vinyl's back. I'm like, it's back, but it's not back enough right. to <laughs> yeah, save yeah. everything. You, right. you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it's awesome in the sense that it's creating what we uh, what's part of our thing that we have to do as a label, I think, is create a relationship between people and the music that they feel strongly about to the point where they don't feel like I should just have this for free or like this doesn't mean anything to me like this means the same as like that coffee I just threw away right like I feel like we have to create an emotional relationship for people between the music or just give them the way to have that relationship we can't create the relationship Well
0: I mean it's weird cuz you and I grew up with it I mean it's part of our DNA yeah. To to buy records, and you know, I got away from it obviously for years. But but once it's back, it's
2: back. It's hard know? to stop once it's well, back. Well, yeah, because you're looking at them like, ah, oh, it's my records. Well, and now there's so many more things available now. It's like, yeah, I never really had a chance to buy uh, an album of Nigerian disco from 1979, but now I can buy like ten volumes of that if I want to. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, oh my god, like now there's too many things I want. And, right. But 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 I guess my point is that like I feel like the reason that it's back is both people like you and I that maybe stopped for a while and, and came back to it, but also people who never had that in the first place and they're like, this is fun. It is. You know, like this is fun. and it's fun so, to look at records. And, and I think that Record Store Day is, a, again, I have conflicted feelings about it because it's it's once a year. Yeah. And everyone goes goes crazy about it. Right. Puts out really cool stuff. Yeah. And stand people stand in line starting at dawn or whatever. Yeah. But I'm just hoping like, you people come back like every now and then, right? Or is it just this one, like, ah frenzy? Yeah, yeah, and then you're like, wow, can't wait till next year. Yeah, you know what I mean? Which I that's, don't know, that's I, not a solution.
0: You well, know. I, I just like the barter element too, is that like all those records that everybody stopped playing in the 90s through now are out in the world somewhere. So, yeah. the interesting thing about going to use record stores and, and digging stuff up is like. There's no shortage to it because, you know, you're looking at how many records were sold in the periods where records were sold. You know, many of them are gone or many of them are damaged, but there's still this ever never-ending ecosystem
2: of boxes of fucking records that show up. And uh, and I, I love it. You know what I like finding is records that came out in the 80s yeah. that then people replaced on... C- they're like, I'm getting the CD of this and right. traded in all their right. records in right. that whole wave of, like, everyone right. replacing their stuff on That's CDs. Right. Because those... There's some stuff there that then maybe went out of print altogether Right, that you can find those LPs that people traded in. Do you
0: see a time where you're just going to be like, no, nah, nah, maybe we'll go out with super chunk once or twice a year.
2: I mean, I, I really go back and forth on that because if I'm not doing music, yeah. I start to go a little crazy. Like I don't think I could just do the label. I don't right. think I could just do the business. Yeah, Like, you know, I have a studio in my basement And like I'm writing songs all the time and whether it ends up being a Super Chunk record or not is whether I can kinda like rope everyone in. My thing was like, I would love to make another record with Super Chunk. I think we all would on some level, maybe some more than others, maybe me the most. Yeah. But only do it if it's gonna be awesome because if someone waits ten years and go like, Oh, you made a record after ten years and it's just not that good. Like that would be the worst. But that one's well received. Oh yeah. They've both been really well received and it's it's very gratifying um as john said recently you know i think that people have an idea that we were bigger than we were in the 90s than we actually were (laughs) (laughs) uh so you know it's not like we're gonna tour uh the world doing like reunion shows on some larger level so it's really is more for us it's interesting
0: to me because i talked to a lot of guys that have you know had arced out in you know, sadly, uh, mainstream music is so youth-driven that when people like you, who, who who obviously become craftsmen and become you know you know mature artists, it it is quite possible and probably probable that you are on some level doing the best work you've ever done. But the 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 sort of context of it is different. That, you know, it's not, right. you know, it's not some, you know, hot, sexy, you know, kind of rage or youth driven type of thing, but it it's actually should be better now. And then just by virtue of the way- Because you know music-
1: what
2: you're doing. Right.
0: Yeah. But by nature of, of, of the music market, you know, all of a sudden when you finally matured to this, to where you need to be, the audience is now either your age- Right. Or, or is hard to access.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's very gratifying when you see people at shows that are young. Yeah. You're like, yes, it's not just- <laughs> It's not just us, <laughs> you know what I mean? That we're playing to. Yeah,
0: we're not some sort of weird, uh, you know, nostalgia tour for the
2: twelve hundred people that we have nationwide. But at the same time, you see people that have been coming to see you since nineteen ninety yeah. or whatever, and you go like, "I love you." Yeah. Like, how can I not love you for coming to see us for twenty four years? Nice to see you guys. So you can't discount any of it. You know, someone uh, asked me yesterday, like, "How long are you going to keep like pogoing on stage or whatever?" You know, and I was like. Well, I don't know, like, I, I, sometimes I do think, like, is it just humiliating? Like, is it just, like, embarrassing? Like, who's the old guy jumping around on stage like he's not old? Hey, I think you gotta go with what you feel. Yeah. If you still feel it, do it. You're right. Sometimes yeah. I feel it and then later rethink that feeling, but <laughs> I think that, like, yeah, I think they, you're right. Yeah, if the
0: feeling is genuine, yeah, you know, just do it. I mean, yeah, there's
2: there's nothing not humiliating about most of life. That's true, and I think that one thing, that's true, and I think that one thing about being in a band long enough to not give a shit whether it's humiliating or not yeah, is kind of like one of the rewards. Yeah, that's the big win. Like, you know?
0: yeah, hey, I don't care if I'm embarrassing myself. I'm having a good time. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, like in the old days, it was just fuck you. Now it's like, fuck you, I'm having fun. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. All right, thanks, Mac. Thank you. That's it, folks. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Carol Leifer, special guest. Mac McCon. good to talk music business for the first time, really. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. Check the schedule, get the app, upgrade the premium app stream, all 500 and some odd WTF episodes. Oh, God, what else? What else? Just JustCoffee.coop, available at WTFPod.com. Get the WTF blend. I get a little, a little on the back end there. Oh, my God. Check the calendar. Did I say that already? Got a lot of gigs coming up. I'm sweating. I'm sweating here. I'm sweating in the garage. It's hot. Oh, my God. So much is going so well. But the personal stuff is so hard. Boomer lives.